Probably the most memorised passage of scripture there is. It probably even exceeds John 3.16, I would think, from Matthew 6.9 to 13. From verse 5, though. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, as we spend our time meditating on these words of the Lord Jesus Christ, Grant grace that we may hear it, that we may receive it, that we may understand it, and know how we might live it out, that he will be glorified and our lives prospered because he dwells in us and lives in us. Amen. I read the context because the actual prayer that the Lord gave to his disciples uh, is embellished by the things that are just before it and just after it, bearing in mind that this prayer is in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the, the very thing he's addressing here is the hypocrites. In the whole Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing the difference between what was being practiced in Israel and what would be practiced by Israel when Jesus' kingdom is established. In the, by and large, this applies quite a lot to the tribulation time. It's not a prayer that uh, Jesus ever needed to pray for himself. It's not a prayer that he intended that the disciples should pray. It was a model. It was an example of the kind of things and the attitudes, the perspectives that they would take uh, in the future. He gives his subjects direction, firstly to Israel, and then 
there are benefits to us as well in this prayer. But this prayer, who was it given to? When Jesus gave this prayer, who did he give it to? It was to his disciples. Who were his disciples? All Jews. Every one of them was a Jew. Where was the church? Long way in the future. It didn't exist. So this prayer was given to Jewish disciples of Jesus. And as we go through it today, I'm going to try, I'm not an expert on this by any means, but I'm going to try to help us to see it as Jesus' disciples may have seen it, how they may have received it. We, we look back on it and we, we see it all through the eyes of the church. But the church didn't exist when Jesus gave this model prayer. It's a model prayer for Jewish believers. Therefore, I believe it's going to be very applicable to Israel now, but especially during the tribulation time. And as we go through it, you may begin to see that a bit too. We called it thy, your kingdom come. Because Israel at that time had the expectation that their Messiah would come and establish the kingdom. That was their expectation. And so they were waiting on the Messiah. They were waiting on the kingdom. And this prayer fits in with that extremely well. It's a model prayer for Israel in their expectation of Messiah's fulfilment of an earthly kingdom. We're going to break it down a little bit. Our Father. Our Father speaks of relational intimacy, childlike access. I, ne don't, I never had this kind of relationship with my father, but I know that many, many uh, father-son relationships are very special. They can be very close. It's very intimate. The superstitious people, the hypocrites of Jesus' time, the Jews, knew nothing about this. But before we can call God our Father, I think a lot of people just think, well, God is the Father of everybody. And in some sense, he is, and the Bible does reveal him of that in some sense. But in this intimate sense that Jesus is referring to here, we must be enter into that father-son relationship. When I say son, I'm not being sexist. It's, it's the, uh, a son is one who inherits. And of course, for, for us today, every male and female all inherit the kingdom of God. It's got nothing to do with sex at all. It's more to do with the relationship between a father and a son. The son inherits everything. In, one John, sorry, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, we read, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, so those who receive Jesus have the right to call him Father. To those, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Being born physically a descendant of Abraham, wasn't enough. Having Christian parents 
isn't enough. Uh, will of the flesh. I think there's a lot of people, and I've met a lot of people who think they are Christians because they believe certain things about God and the Bible. They have a desire to go to heaven. We call them nominal Christians. In other words, they're Christian by name, but not actually born of God, not created new yet. And not by the will of man. Again, these are nominal Christians who uh, have attained this by maybe infant christening, by baptism, uh, by church membership. For Israel, of course, it was by circumcision. Uh, All man-made rituals, none of those would do the job either. But of God, born of God, a new birth. And this can only be accomplished by God in his will. And he does this in response to our faith. When a person puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he creates them new. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, we read, Behold what manner or what kind of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. We can call him Father. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Where have we gone there? Oh, I skipped that one, didn't I? No? Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. A change has taken place. There's a number of... uh, by the way, the scriptures I'm sharing with you today only a small portion of what I could have shared, but obviously you don't want to be here all afternoon. But there's just so much scripture about that. The relationship, intimate relationship between a father and a son, when Jesus says, you, you Jews, Jewish followers of myself, you can call him our father. A very intimate relationship must be in place. There's a number of evidences that... Um, We are children of God. I've only picked on one of them, but there's quite a few. I picked on this one because it's pertinent to me, uh, personally. But Proverbs 3, 11 to 12 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. You know, my, my father had to correct me quite a few times. Uh, taught me self-discipline. Unfortunately, our world tells parents not to discipline their children. You might upset their natural development. So we, and now we've got a whole lot of youth in our prisons because they've never learned self-discipline. But chastening, discipline, in love, which is what it says here, isn't it? For whom the Lord loves, 
if the Lord chastens you, it's because he loves you. Let's read what it, in Hebrews, we read even more on that. If, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. Father, son. For what son is there that a father does not chasten? Because a father loves his son, he chastens him. But if you, you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are Ill, illegitimate and not sons. In other words, if God is not, does not chastise you when you go astray or correct you when you persist in that, then, it's, then it's, you're not one of his sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit. That's why God chastens us. For our profit. That we may be partakers of his grace. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now there's benefit to us for it. What does Psalm 23 say? Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Hang on a sec. The rod that chastises, the rod that disciplines, the staff with the hook on it, uh, the shepherd's hook, you know, if we start to go astray, the shepherd's hook comes down, got you, and drags you back. If we persist in going astray, the rod might come out. But it's out of love. It's not punishment. It's correction. It's just teaching you to discipline. It's to bring you back to where that's safe. I've told you many times about the uh, harbour at Port Perry in South Australia where the water is so shallow the big ships couldn't come in, so they dug a channel and they put markers on it. Those markers showed you where it was safe for the ships to go. If they went outside those markers, they'd run aground. They'd be shipwrecked. And that's what, uh, what God does. He's keeping us in the channel. He's keeping us where it's safe. So it's done out of love, just as a father chastises their son. This is how we know we're children of God. Because he brings us back when we're going astray. And if we are persistent, he'll correct us. Because he loves us. It's for our profit. Our Father in heaven. Just goes over the head a bit, doesn't it? But if you were one of Jesus' disciples, long before the church was thought of, how would you have thought about this? What would you have thought Jesus was saying, Our Father in heaven? What was Israel's expectation? That God would be in Jerusalem. So in a sense, they would have think, oh yeah, but he's in heaven, but we don't want him there, we want him down here. I'm not confusing Jesus with the Father because in Revelation it tells us that God will dwell in Jerusalem. He himself, Father and Son. Obviously God is everywhere all at the same time, but he will especially present himself in Israel. They would have remembered Genesis 3.8. 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden and in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife had them, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Where was the Lord God? On earth, among the trees of the garden. Also, when they came out of Egypt, God presenced himself with them in the cloud of, pillar of cloud and, and the pillar of fire. When they built the tabernacle, God presenced himself in the tabernacle for 40 years and, in, and some time in the promised land. When Solomon built his temple, God presenced himself in the temple for a time until Israel turned away, then he departed. For those disciples at that time who knew nothing about the things we know about in the New Testament, their expectations were that God would presence himself in Jerusalem. But he says, our Father in heaven. In John 14, 23, we read this is more specific to us than Israel. It's to the church. Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, we, Father and Son, you cannot divide God up. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, you can't put one there, one there, one there. They are one. If you receive Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you receive the Father. There is no other way for it. He says, we will come to him and do what? Make our home. Oh, this is, to me, I just, brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> if anyone loves him, he will keep my word. That's the evidence of his love. And my father will love him. This is a special kind of love. It's not just this you know, run of the mill. It's very special. We will come to him and make our home. Isn't this something you want? This is so so so, so precious. In Revelation twenty two, three to four. This is in the new heavens and new earth. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, this is on earth, and his servants shall serve him, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. So how would Israel, have, these disciples of Jesus viewed, Jesus saying, our Father in heaven, they, their hearts were longing for God to be in Jerusalem. And God has set his heart on Jerusalem. Jerem, I'll just, there are multitudes of scriptures. I, I, I had to cut them right back. I had dozens, but I cut them back just a few. And I'll read them quickly for you. Jeremiah 3.17 At that time Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall be gathered to it in the name of the Lord. To Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Zechariah 1.14 so the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem 
and for Zion with great zeal. Zechariah 8.22 Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Zechariah 4... Oh, sure, I haven't been putting these up for you. Sorry. You should have cried out. Put them up. Hit the clicker. Zechariah 14.17 And it shall be whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there shall be no rain. I mean, this, God has a special place for Jerusalem. Do you think that uh, the Gentiles have overrun Jerusalem before? They may do it again. We don't know for certain. I've got my doubts, but we don't know for certain. But God will dwell in Jerusalem in the millennial reign of Christ, but also uh, in the eternal, uh, the new heavens and new earth. So when we read the scriptures, we realise that God wants to dwell, right from Genesis 1, right from the creation of man, when Adam was created, God has wanted to dwell on the earth with man. That's been his desire all the way through. He wants to do that. And that prepares us in a way for verse 10, where he says, your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But in Revelation, oh, okay, when we read that God is in heaven, we realise that he wants to and will dwell with men on the earth. In Revelation 21, 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, this is the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from, the, from God, prepared as a bride for his, for his husband. When Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, what was in the Holy of Holies, in the temple? Te te temple? Nothing. It was empty. So how do you think these disciples would have felt when Jesus said, pray our Father in heaven? The temple's empty. They're, they're, they were waiting for that temple to be filled, the Holy of Holies, to have God occupy it again. We'll have to move along a little more quickly, and we will. Hallowed be your name. Again, this is a, a big topic in itself, and uh, Ken had a whole lot of songs this morning about holy, holiness of God, holy, holy, holy. Uh, and uh, the word hallowed is, comes from the same root word as holy, and the same root word as sanctified. They all come from the same root word. The meaning is basically to be separated from sin and ungodliness to God, godliness and God. And uh, in 1 Peter we read, 1 Peter 1.15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So we are praying that God's name would be hallowed or made Whole in the eyes of men, or sanctified. In Ezekiel 36, uh, 23, we read, And I will sanctify my great name, that is, I'll set it apart, uh, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed 
in you, that is Israel, before their, the Gentiles, eyes. God's name and God himself will be hallowed in Israel and that will be a witness to all the nations of the world. That has not yet happened, of course. That will happen when Jesus returns. To be hallowed means to be esteemed as holy. So when, when Israel be, esteems Jesus as holy and recognises him, then uh, his name will be hallowed. And in reflection on this, and you, you can look up a whole lot of more references on uh, his holy name. There's heaps and heaps of them, especially in the Psalms, and I've just got a few here for you. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Remember, hallowed be your name. Uh, his holy name, Psalm 97, 12. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Psalm 145, 21. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, Hallowed be your name, this is what we're praying for. When Jesus returns, his name will be hallowed, and all creation will know his holy name. Now this is the part the disciples would have perhaps been more interested in because they had an expectancy of their Messiah coming to establish their kingdom. And so in this prayer he says, your kingdom come. The coming of the kingdom speaks of the consummation of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but also that he revealed to King David in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Remember this? God says, I will. People won't do it. God says, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Whenever you read in scriptures about the establishment of Christ, or God's kingdom on earth, the word forever is always there. Once it's done, it will not cease. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven now? No. A long way short. Not even on the radar. The disciples would long for that, but it will only happen when God establishes his kingdom. That's why he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. When his kingdom comes, his will will be done. Uh, not before. But you notice, where is his kingdom going to be? On earth. We often have this idea that when we die, we go up to some place called heaven, um, airy fairy place in a sense, but his kingdom's going to be on the earth. And so someone mentioned to me the other day that 
people, the Jehovah Witnesses are saying, oh, but because they, um, they said, oh, don't you want to go to heaven? They said, no, we don't want to go to heaven because his kingdom's going to be here on earth. Uh, well, it is. They don't get it all right, of course. Most of it's wrong, but they get this part right, that the kingdom's going to be here on earth. And when Jesus returns, all of us will come with him for his millennial reign of his kingdom here on earth, and then in the new heavens and new earth, he will reign uh, forever. We will reign with him as well. How can we make his will be done today? For the disciples, of course, that was just looking forward to Messiah, and they, they had him right before them, and they thought he would establish their kingdom in his li- their lifetimes, which he didn't do, of course. But we can bow to God's sovereign purposes now. We can be, be involved in proclaiming the gospel uh, now. We can search out God's will as revealed in the scriptures and do it, or surrender to it and do it. And of course we can pray for Christ's return to openly establish his earthly rule. And of course that's the only time when we will have peace on this earth. When Jesus <coughs> reigns during the millennial his reign, it will be with a rod of iron, that is, with strict righteousness. Revelation 19:15 we read, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Now words, strictly. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Righteousness will reign over the earth, even though there will be people who are not yet saved, because they'll be born in that period. Uh, there'll be those who <coughs> have not yet been resurrected, uh, but he will rule with a rod of iron, and, and we're going to be reigning with him. So if we haven't learned how, how to discipline or train a child now, uh, we're going to learn then. But then he says, give us this day our daily bread, the daily sustenance. What would Jesus' disciples be thinking about when he said that? Well, I've got a couple of scriptures that relate to that, both before and then a couple afterwards. You think back to the ark. And I haven't got the verse in my notes, so I can barely read that one, so I might have to turn around. When Noah was bringing the animals into the ark, he and his family, he said, And you shall take for yourselves of all the food that is, in, is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. When God took Noah and his family and all the animals on the ark, he provided all the food they would need for the 12 months that they were going to be uh, in the ark. There were everybody... Every creature on that ark was a vegetarian. You think about that. Every creature on the ark was a vegetarian. Noah might have been wishing that there was one that was not. The anteater. If you're you're in a wooden ark, you don't want white ants, do you? So, So I don't know about that one. Well, that's a fair fee to give you a chuckle. But every creature on the ark was vegetarian. But mostly, perhaps, for the, for the disciples of Jesus, they would have been thinking about the manna in the wilderness. 
For 40 years, God provided manna from heaven for, for his people, Israel, as they left Egypt on their way to the promised land. For 40 years, he provided the manna six days a week. On the sixth day, there was enough for two days, so they didn't need it on the seventh. They did that for 40 years. That would be something that would be in their minds very clearly. But also, probably a little later than when Jesus was expressing this, he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, which should have reminded the Israelite people of the manna in the wilderness, that God would provide your daily bread. So in the, you can imagine in the tribulation time, which the Bible tells us is going to be a time of war, time of famine, time of starvation, that they would pray, uh, give us this day our daily bread. You and I, we don't have to worry too much about that. But in, in the tribulation time, this will be something very important, not just to Israel, of course, but to all people. This day, our daily bread, and we can see that God is the one who's able to provide that. But he'll also provide it forever for Israel and for all who trust in the Lord Jesus. And it goes beyond just food for the body. It goes to the spirit. He will provide all we need for our whole being. There will be spiritual blessings as well and that's expressed in the new covenant. But then there's forgiving grace. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, if we owe something to somebody and they forgive us as Christ has forgiven us, then we will forgive others as well. Forgiveness of sin is fundamental to true Christianity. It's the very breath of Jesus in his last moments on the cross before he, he gave up his spirit. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In God's heart is this spirit of forgiveness. He is forgiving. He doesn't hold a grudge. And uh, I've got the picture there of the, the, from the parable of the lost son returning to his earthly father. The father was there waiting day after day, waiting for his son to come back. There was no issue of... Because when the prodigal son got there, he asked for forgiveness. But there was no need to ask for it. It was already given in that sense. And that's the way we can come to our Heavenly Father too. But if, as he goes on in verse 14 and 15, if we refuse to forgive other people, it shows that we have not ourselves been forgiven. Or that we at least are not living as Christ lived. And as I've said to you before on other occasions, that forgiveness is more than just something we do. Forgiveness is an attitude of heart. In other words, because Christ paid for my sin and he paid the price for the sin of every other person in this world, because everything that I am and own belongs to him, no one owes me anything. And so it's an attitude of heart that nobody owes me anything. Therefore, people may come and ask for forgiveness for something, but it's already forgiven. I've never held the grudge. And that's how we should live. Of course, we do hold grudges and we do hold that somebody owes us something from time to time. 
until the Spirit of God convicts us of that. We may argue that our sin was forgiven at the time we received Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. So why is there need to ask for forgiveness again? And it's true. All our sins were forgiven the moment we trusted Christ. Everything is gone. But in in the intimate relationship with the Father, uh, we may sin again, wittingly or unwittingly. Uh, And also we may realise later on that years ago we did a particular sin. The Spirit of God may remind us of something we did 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yes, that sin's already forgiven, but in order to maintain the relationship, we come to him and we ask his forgiveness. And in 1 John 1, 9 we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. Faithful means that he will do according to as he said and just to forgive us. In other words, he he is justified in forgiving our sins because Christ died for us. That's the only reason God can forgive you or forgive me of any sin is because Christ died and shed his blood in our place. Confessing sin means agreeing with God that a a word or an attitude or behaviour is sin and then choosing not to repeat it. Forgiveness doesn't come cheap or easy. It may seem that way to us because it doesn't cost us anything. But it took the cross and Jesus shed blood, as we've shared at the communion table, to purchase that forgiveness. Jesus is inviting us to come repeatedly to the foot of the cross and to receive him through forgiveness of sins. Protection of the Father. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, didn't he, after his baptism, to be tested or tempted by Satan. And then, but we read in James 1, 13 to 14, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. It may well be that the Spirit of God places us in the place where we will be tempted or tested, just as he did Jesus. But that doesn't mean we have to follow through. God does not tempt us. Satan does that. Uh, but it's our, if we yield into that tempt, test, temptation or testing, it's because of our desires. It's because of what's in us. And it's one of the ways of exposing where we're really at in our relationship with God. And that's, that's what he did with Jesus. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness so he could be tested or tempted but without sin. So we know he is not a sinner. He never sinned. But for you and I, the case, that's not true because we are, from time to time, put in the place of temptation and maybe many times we do resist it or flee from it or reject it, but there are times when we don't because of our own desires 
we are enticed by our own desires or lusts. So God doesn't test us. He may lead us to the place of testing, but he doesn't test us himself. And so we are to pray that God would not allow us to be tested or tempted beyond what we're able to bear because of the weakness of the flesh. And in so doing, he would deliver us from the evil one. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, we read, No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. In other words, if you've been tested or tempted in a particular way, guess what? So is most everybody else. But God is faithful. Gee, isn't that great? God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Unfortunately, we don't always look for the way of escape, do we? But God provides it. And of course, in Christ, it's there. And we must look for that way when we are being tempted because that's when we grow spiritually. And of course, when we uh, yield to a temptation, uh, it exposes us too, so that we now know to confess that and uh, we'll be stronger for, the, for it. And that's the, in- the intent of this whole sermon in chapters 5 through 7, is to reveal the righteousness of God in contrast to the righteousness of the religious leaders of the day. Their righteousness was an outward appearance for all the praise for the praise of men. God's righteousness comes from the heart and comes from God. Uh, it, is, it, it is expressed outwardly, but it has its origins in God. Worship in the kingdom, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Some of your translations won't have this. You're saying, what, where do you get that from? Well, it depends on the translation you have. And I'm not going to go into... Uh, making you decide whether it should be there or not. Um, But whether it was in Matthew's original or not, what is it? It's an expression of worship of God's amazing redemption of mankind and the establishment of his earthly kingdom. And as I said before, the word forever is permanently attached to God's kingdom no matter where you read it in the Bible. So then I hope this has helped you to, to try and see this from the disciples' perspective to somewhat, uh, but also how we see it as well. And, but the special meaning it will carry for Israel in the tribulation time. For me, it's a prayer for his kingdom to come. And I know many of you pray for his kingdom to come too. But also it's an expression of faith that the answer will come. Also, it's a a message of worship of our faithful God. This is not a prayer that we are just to recite over and over and over like the pagans do. It's a model prayer for us to base our prayers upon. And as we've prayed before, and as I'm sure you pray for Israel in the current environment, this helps us to understand what God is doing. He's He's allowing these things to happen in order to bring Israel to the place where they will receive Messiah when he returns. Because they rejected him the first time. But when he comes the second time, they will receive him and they will receive him because he has prepared them beforehand. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your scriptures. We thank you that people have recorded it in the days when Jesus was walking the earth and that you, through various people, have preserved it. You've translated it into our language. And Lord, our glorious expectation and hope is the return of the Lord Jesus. We don't see any hope in mankind being able to resolve the issues that are surround us in this world. If anything, is making things worse. And our only hope is you and your return. But we know that in the meantime, you are leading us all, you're directing us on a path that will glorify your name. You chastise us when we go astray for our profit because you love us. You, you call us very intimate and personal relationship we, can, we have with you. Lord, we thank you for such great love. We thank you that for great salvation. That when Jesus died on the cross, he could say, it's finished. Thank you.